Welcome everyone to episode three of the Curse Land podcast, an anthology show about strange happenings, curious folk, and small towns. I am your host and sole proprietor of Curse Land, which can be found at www.curse.land. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Let's get started. serene evening in the middle of August, 1775, Captain Warrens, the master of a Greenland whale ship, found himself becalmed along a vast number of icebergs in about 77 degrees north latitude. On one side, and within a mile of his vessel, these were of immense height and closely wedged together, and a succession of snow-covered peaks appeared behind each other as far as the eye could reach, showing that the ocean was completely blocked up in that quarter and that it had probably been so for a long period of time. Captain Warrens did not feel altogether satisfied with his situation, but there being no wind, he could not move either one way or another, and he therefore kept a strict watch, knowing that he would be safe as long as the surrounding icebergs continued in their respective places. From the Ariel, a literary gazette, the dangers of sailing in high latitudes. About midnight, the wind rose to a gale, accompanied by thick showers of snow, while a succession of tremendous thundering, grinding, and crushing noises gave fearful evidence that the ice was in motion. The vessel received violent shocks every moment, for the haziness of the atmosphere prevented those on board from discovering in what direction the open winter lay, or if there was actually any at all on either side of them. The night was spent in tacking as often as any cause of danger happened to present itself, and in the morning the storm abated, and Captain Warrens found to his great joy that his ship had not sustained any serious injury. He remarked with surprise that the accumulated icebergs, which had on the preceding evening formed an impenetrable barrier, had been separated and disarranged by the wind, and that in one place a canal of open sea wound its course among them as far as the eye could discern. It was two miles beyond the entrance of this canal that a ship made its appearance about noon. The sun shone brightly at the time, and a gentle breeze blew from the north. At first, some intervening icebergs prevented Captain Warrens from distinctly seeing anything except her masts, but he was struck with the strange manner in which her sails were disposed and the dismantled aspect of her yards and rigging. She continued to go before the wind for a few furlongs, and then grounding upon the low icebergs remained motionless. Captain Warren's curiosity was so much excited that he immediately leaped into the boat with several seamen and rowed towards her. On approaching, he observed that her hull was miserably weather-beaten and not a soul appeared upon the deck, which was covered with snow to a considerable depth. He hailed her crew several times, but no answer was returned. Previous to stepping on board, an open porthole near the main chains caught his eye, and on looking into it, 
he perceived a man reclining back in a chair with writing materials on a small table before him, but the feebleness of the light made everything very indistinct. The party, therefore, went upon deck, and having removed the hatchway, which they found closed, they descended to the cabin. They first came to the apartment which Captain Warren's had viewed through the porthole. A tremor seized him as he entered it. Its inmate retained his former position and seemed to be insensible of strangers. He was found to be a corpse. A green, damp mold had covered his cheeks and forehead and veiled his eyeballs. He held a pen in his hand and a log book before him, the last sentence in whose unfinished page ran thus. 11th November, 1792. We have now been enclosed in the ice 70 days. The fire went out yesterday, and our master has been trying ever since to kindle it again, but without success. His wife died this morning. There is no relief. Captain Warrens and his seamen hurried from the spot without uttering a word. On entering the principal cabin, the first object that attracted their attention was the dead body of a female reclining on a bed in an attitude of deep interest and attention. Her countenance retained the freshness of life, and a stiff contraction of the limbs alone showed that her form was inanimate. Sealed on the floor, in one corner of the room, was the corpse of an apparently young man holding a steel in one hand and a flint in the other, as if the act of striking fire upon some tinder which lay beside him. In the forepart of the vessel, several sailors were found lying dead in their berths, and the body of a dog was crouched at the bottom of the gangway stairs. Neither provisions nor fuel could be discovered anywhere, but Captain Warren's was prevented by the superstitious prejudices of his seamen from examining the vessel as minutely as he wished to have done. He therefore carried away the logbook already mentioned and returned to his own ship and immediately steered to the southward, deeply impressed with awful example which he had just witnessed of the danger of navigating the polar seas in high northern latitudes. On returning to England, he made various inquiries respecting vessels that had disappeared in an unknown way, and by comparing the results of these with the information which was afforded by the written documents in his possession, he ascertained the name and history of the imprisoned ship and of her unfortunate master, and found that she had been frozen up seventeen years previous to the time of his discovering her among the ice. Coonhounds are the only breed of the original six breeds of coonhounds without British influence in their ancestry. The other five breeds can trace their ancestry back to the foxhound, but the plot hound is the exception. And of only four dogs known to be of American origin, it's the only known breed to have been developed in North Carolina, where it is currently the state dog. From the website, AppalachianHistory.net A story by Dave Tabler The Hound That Made the Plot Name a Legend During the Great Migration of German, Scotch-Irish, Moravians, and other Europeans to America in the 18th century, Johannes George Plot, a 16-year-old boy and an older brother, unnamed in family records, 
left Heidelberg, Germany to board the ship Priscilla from Rotterdam, Holland for Philadelphia. There were 209 German immigrants on board. They were accompanied by five Hanoverian hounds, three striped and two yellowish. The brother died during the voyage and was buried at sea, but Johannes arrived in Philadelphia on September 12, 1750, where he anglicized his name. Jonathan traveled to New Bern, North Carolina, and then inland to Cabarrus County. He married Margaret Littleton, bought a farm, and they began raising five sons and four daughters and hunting dogs. Plot supposedly kept his strain entirely pure, making no outcrosses. In 1780, the Plot Pact passed into the hands of Henry Plot. At the age of 30, Henry, along with wife Lydia and brother-in-law Jonathan Osborne, left home to settle in Haywood County, or what was then Buncombe County, on Pigeon River, near where Canton is now situated. There, Osborne and Plot seemed to have bought a farm in partnership, made one crop, and dissolved the company or partnership. Osborne went back to Cabarrus, but came again later, and Plot, with Lydia, went farther west, took up a state grant on the waters of Richland and Dix Creek, the latter afterwards known as Plot's Creek, and settled down as a permanent home. The exact spot of his location is now the home place of John A. Plot, a great-grandson. Henry and his pack of plots were often called in to help his neighbors rid their farms of wildlife that was attacking their livestock. Henry Plot and Lydia Osborne Plot reared a family of eight sons and three daughters. Henry died in 1839. It is for this famous hunter and his descendants that the U.S. Park Service named three peaks in the Balsam Mountain Range and erected an interpretive sign at mile marker 457.9 along the Blue Ridge Parkway, the Plot Balsam Overlook, honoring Henry and his descendants. It reads, Before you lies the massive Plot Balsam Range. On one of its eastern slopes, Henry Plot, a German immigrant's son, made his home in the early 1800s. In this game-filled frontier, hunting dogs were a prized possession. Here, Henry Plot and his descendants developed the famous Plot Bear Hounds carefully selecting for the qualities of stamina, courage, and alertness the breed possesses today. For the next 200 years, the dogs were bred by generations of Plot family members and were referred to as the Plot's Hounds. The dogs worked at Hunting Bear and Raccoon in the Appalachian, Blue Ridge, and Great Smoky Mountains of the eastern United States. The Plot family rarely put the dogs on the market, so they remained rare outside the southern United States. The dogs were recognized for the first time in 1946 by the United Kennel Club. These hounds come in many different colors. There are buckskins, blacks, brindles, browns, reds, and or a combination of any of these colors. Plots are hardy and have superior hunting instincts. They are very effective in the search for coyotes, wolves, and wildcats. The breed was carefully developed to be strong, courageous, and persistent. They were able to make good family companions, but were seldom kept as one, as most owners acquired the dogs for the hunt. It was initially used as a wild boar hound, but has also been used for big game hunting. Plots are also known for being very gritty, and this is why they are used on big game such as bear so often, rather than for raccoon. 
Old Jonathan Plot would probably be surprised to find a valley and a mountain and a range of mountains as well as a creek bearing the family name. He probably would be even more surprised and amazed to find that it has been the dogs he brought from Germany that have made the Plot name a legend. The Plot Hound was officially adopted as North Carolina's state dog on August 12, 1989. Andersonville Prison was never meant to hold as many prisoners as it did. During the first few years of the Civil War, Confederate soldiers had been toting their Union POWs around with them or dropping them in makeshift camps around the Confederacy. By the last year of the war, however, they'd realized they needed a more secure solution. From the website, allthat'sinteresting.com, a story by Katie Serena. Can this be hell? inside the Civil War's most horrifying prison camp. Constructing Andersonville Prison Camp Sumter, later known as the Andersonville Prison, was that solution. Built to be roughly 1,620 feet long and 779 feet wide, the camp was expected to accommodate about 10,000 men and had been outfitted with the bare minimum of accommodations to do so. Within a year, though, the camp was home to four times that amount, and the conditions had thus declined rapidly. Not only was the camp struggling for resources like clothing and space, but the prisoners were at risk of death from disease, starvation, and exposure. Before long, Andersonville Prison had become the worst prisoner of war camp that the United States had ever seen. As soon as the first prisoners arrived, they could tell that the conditions would be hell. The camp was surrounded by a 15-foot-high stockade, but the real danger was the line that lay 19 feet inside the stockade, known as the Dead Line. The line marked the entrance to a no-man's land, a strip of land that kept the prisoners away from the stockade walls. Dotted around the Dead Line were towers known as pigeon roosts in which Confederate soldiers kept watch. Anyone crossing or even touching the deadline was allowed to be shot and killed without warning by the soldiers in the roosts. It may seem unnecessary to keep guards posted around the deadline because who would ever consider crossing it when the penalty was so severe? But lo and behold, some prisoners did cross it, for the conditions they faced inside the line were far worse than the prospect of death outside it. As for the conditions inside, the largest problem that the prison had was first and foremost the overcrowding. Because the expected number of prisoners had been so low when the construction began, the camp had simply not been built to accommodate the nearly 45,000 prisoners it held by 1865. Aside from a sheer lack of space, the overcrowding caused a host of other problems, ranging from things like a lack of food and water, the leading cause of death among the prisoners was starvation, as well as clothing, to severe issues like disease outbreak. Can this be hell? Andersonville Prison was frequently undersupplied with food and fresh water as the Confederacy placed a higher priority on feeding their soldiers than their prisoners. Emaciated, the prisoners then wasted away. Those who didn't die from starvation often contracted scurvy from vitamin deficiencies. Those who didn't contract scurvy were often subjected to dysentery, hookworms, or typhoid from the contaminated water at the camp. Those who managed to scrape by 
surviving starvation or poisoning from the water were likely to die from exposure as the overcrowding and arrival of at least 400 new prisoners a day forced the weakest out of the tents and into the open. As we entered the place, a spectacle met our eyes that almost froze our blood with horror and made our hearts fail within us, wrote prisoner Robert H. Kellogg, who entered the camp on May 2, 1864. Before us were forms that had once been active and erect, stalwart men, now nothing but mere walking skeletons, covered with filth and vermin. Many of our men, in the heat and intensity of their feeling, exclaimed with earnestness, Can this be hell? God protect us. Six months in, the creek banks had eroded, making way for a swamp that occupied the large, central portion of the camp. In the center of the hole was a swamp, occupying about three or four acres of the narrowed limits, and a part of this marshy place had been used by the prisoners as a sink, and excrement covered the ground, the scent arising from which was suffocating, wrote Kellogg. The ground allotted to our ninety was near the edge of this plague spot, and how we were to live through the warm summer weather in the midst of such fearful surroundings was more than we cared to think of just then. If the horrifying conditions inside the camp weren't bad enough, the treatment the prisoners received at the hands of the guards may have topped it. Guards regularly brutalized the inmates, especially those who couldn't fight back or fend for themselves. Eventually, one of the commanders was executed for his crimes following the war, after prisoners and even a few other guards testified that he had brutalized inmates, allowed other guards to torment them, and turned a blind eye to the mistreatment of the inmates. Prisoners left to their own. In response to the harsh conditions and the guards' treatment, the prisoners were forced to fend for themselves. As a result, a sort of primitive prison social network and hierarchy arose. Those prisoners who had friends, or at least men willing to watch out for them, tended to survive much longer than those on their own. Each group shared their rations of food, clothes, shelter, and moral support, and would defend each other from other groups or guards. Eventually, the prison camp formed its own sort of judicial system, with a small jury of inmates and a judge who kept a reasonable amount of peace. This came in handy when one group took survival too far. Known as the Andersonville Raiders, this group of prisoners would attack fellow inmates, stealing food and wares from their shelters. They armed themselves with crude clubs and bits of wood and were prepared to fight to the death should the need arise. An opposing group, calling themselves the Regulators, rounded up the Raiders and put them before their makeshift judge. The jury then sentenced them to whatever punishments they could, including running the gauntlet, being sent to the stocks, and even death by hanging. At one point, a Confederate captain even paroled several Union soldiers, ordering them to take a message back to the Union asking to reinstate prisoner exchanges. Had the request been accepted, the overcrowding could have stopped and the prison could be rebuilt into a more acceptable prison camp. The request, however, was denied, along with several subsequent ones. The Liberation of Andersonville Finally, in May of 1865, following the end of the Civil War, Andersonville Prison was liberated. Several military tribunals were conducted in order to hold the captains responsible for their war crimes. 
Through scattered research, the Union Army discovered that 315 prisoners had managed to escape Andersonville, though all but 32 were eventually recaptured. They also found a list, handwritten by a young Union soldier, of all the prisoners kept in Andersonville. It was published in the New York Tribune upon the end of the war and used to create a monument at the site of Andersonville Prison to all the men who had suffered inside its walls. Today, the site is a National Historic Site that serves as a reminder of the horrors that occurred there some 150 years ago. It was a memorable Friday the 13th for Donald McDonald of the Gulf Coast Bigfoot Research Organization. When he was invited to speak at the annual Collard Green Festival in Evergreen earlier this month, he had no idea he'd discover evidence of the legendary creature in Conica County. From the website AL.com, a story by Kelly Kazik. Bigfoot hunters say claw marks likely evidence of Alabama booger monster. But when a resident of the Pine Orchard community pointed out claw marks on a tree in his yard, McDonald determined they couldn't have been made by humans, and it's unlikely they were made by any other animals. Some of those claw marks start at about 8 feet off the ground and go to almost 12 feet, McDonald said. Yes, there are bears in the area, but a bear... If it would have made those marks, there would have been bear claw marks on the side of the tree where it climbed it, and there were none. McDonald was accompanied by fellow researcher Michael Humphreys, his co-star on the TV show Killing Bigfoot, which airs at 9 p.m. Central, February 4th, on Destination America. Alabama Bigfoot enthusiast Ashley McFall of Excel joined the men, and Lee Peacock of the Evergreen Current tagged along for the story. Peacock said he doesn't know what to make of the claw marks. I'm a very skeptical person by nature, but I like to keep an open mind. I have never personally seen a Bigfoot, but what I saw at Pine Orchard the other day is hard to ignore, he said. Like true expert trackers, McDonald and Humphreys seem to be able to see things in the woods that most people wouldn't give much attention to. It's a very eye-opening experience for me. McDonald and Humphreys didn't do any filming for the TV show while in Alabama, but they came to town early to check some Bigfoot sightings recorded to GCRBO from people in the area. I had no idea when I was contacted there were that many reports of these creatures in the area, he said. Bigfoot howls and screams in the area have been heard by several of the locals. Many have seen it cross the road on them and had them around their homes. McDonald said the GCBRO had about 18 reports in the area, but when he left Alabama, he had as many as 40 reports of sightings. Just amazing. According to the Gulf Coast Bigfoot Research Center website, people have reported seeing Sasquatch in 43 of Alabama's 67 counties. McDonald said he didn't get to the Sepulga River bottoms, an area where about six people have reported seven to eight foot tall hairy bipedal creatures crossing the roads seen coming out of the river and in people's backyards if the killing bigfoot team were to find a creature that threatened humans they would kill it mcdonald said 
They are not these forest friends that many people think they are, he said. He said Alabamians have different names for the creature known as Bigfoot or Sasquatch. These Bigfoot creatures in Alabama have several local names, he said. The Alabama White Thing, and around Evergreen, it's the Alabama Booger Monster. I'm sure there are a lot more local names throughout the state. McDonald said that anyone who'd like to report a sighting can email him at msbigfoot1 at gmail.com. And now, listeners, here are two related stories that are current and still ongoing. The first of which is titled, Mysterious Unexplained Booms Heard Near Oak Ridge National Laboratory. This is from the MysteriousUniverse.org website, and this story is by Brett Tingley. Mysterious and unexplained booms continue to be heard in the skies over America. Last week, residents of historic Charleston, South Carolina, took to social media to express their confusion and fear over what some described as an earthquake or explosion heard and felt on Monday, July 23rd. Charleston native Jerry Sanders told ABC News 4 that the sound was powerful enough to rattle her home. The windows shook in our house, and I was just surprised because I haven't really heard anything like that before around this area. I heard a huge boom. The windows rattled a little bit, and I thought maybe that they were doing some building. I thought maybe they were doing some small explosion. That's what I thought, because a lot of building is still going on in this neighborhood, so I just assumed probably that's what it was. The boom, whatever it was, could be heard throughout the greater Charleston area. Meteorologists assured social media users that there were no earthquakes or thunderstorms in the area, and that the sound was likely caused by military training exercises taking place off the coast. Could sonic booms be to blame? Could the recent spate of booms nationwide imply increased military exercises or training? Whatever the case in Charleston may be, another unexplained anomalous sound just a few hours northwest may have a stranger cause, judging from its location. Police in Maryville, Tennessee, received several calls on Monday, July 30th, around 9.30 p.m., from residents who heard what sounded like four loud booms or explosions. Maryville Police Chief Tony Crisp sent officers to investigate, but no explanation was found. We checked and did not find anything that could ever establish the cause of that, Crisp told county newspaper The Blount Times. It's just a mystery at this point. While underground cave collapses or deep seismic activity is often cited as a possible cause of booms in the area, University of Tennessee geologist Dr. Bob Hatcher told a local NBC affiliate that these explanations are unlikely. People have called me about them and I have no concept of how to explain them. A boom like that, it's not likely an earthquake. We've talked about whether or not this could be collapse in a cave. We have lots of caves around here, but that wouldn't necessarily produce a loud boom on the surface. Aside from cave systems, Maryville, Tennessee is also not far at all from the Department of Energy-funded Oak Ridge National Laboratory. Oak Ridge was responsible for enriching the uranium involved with the Manhattan Project, and since its founding in 1942, 
has been the home of the most advanced and classified energy materials and research the Department of Energy conducts, not to mention numerous UFO sightings and reports. Could these mystery booms have anything to do with Oak Ridge National Laboratory? If so, we'll never know. That place stays mighty frosty. And the second story is titled, Mystery of Unexplained Booms in Tennessee Deepens. This is also by Brett Tingley. Earlier this month, eerily familiar unexplained booms were heard in eastern Tennessee. While mystery booms have become fairly common, but no less anomalous phenomenon over the last few years, the location of the booms was curious, given the proximity to Oak Ridge National Laboratory, a frequent home of nuclear energy research. While the nearby research facility was passed over as a possible origin for the booms, the conflicting official explanations which have surfaced only add further intrigue to this incident. The United States Geological Survey confirmed a small magnitude 2.1 earthquake in the area on Friday, July 3rd, four days after the initial booms were reported. One resident said this second boom felt like my house was picked up and dropped. In the 24 hours that followed the July 3rd event, the USGS continued to revise its report, changing the magnitude to 1.9, then 2.4, and finally back to 2.1. Finally, the USGS claimed that the boom was due to a nearby quarry blast. However, Carl Van Hoosier, community relations manager for Vulcan Materials, which owns the nearby quarry in Blount County, isn't having it. Van Hoosier issued a statement claiming the USGS's story doesn't add up. The USGS is absolutely incorrect. There was no quarry blast today or any time this week. A 2.1 earthquake is pretty extreme. Our blasts are controlled and small. It's an earthquake. It's not a quarry blast. This isn't the first time mysterious booms have perplexed Tennessee officials. Tennessee does sit on an active seismological zone after all. If it was an earthquake though, why all the finger pointing at quarries? The city of Maryville meanwhile issued their own statement about the confusing and conflicting explanations offered in the wake of the mystery booms. We have not found any visible evidence of a surface blast and we can confirm that it was not a result of a quarry blast. Local seismographs indicate a possible earthquake, however, we do not know for sure the cause of the event. Officials from the U.S. Geological Survey will need to make that determination. We expect to receive communication from the emergency management staff when the cause of the event is determined. Emergency management staff? Why would they need to be involved? Residents in Maryville, meanwhile, are just as confused. Okay, big booms again in Maryville? What's going on? What exactly is happening in Maryville, Tennessee? Mount Vernon, like any place, has seen its share of violent crimes over the years. But if there's one crime that looms larger than all the rest, it is the 1905 murder that isn't even known by the name of its victim. It's known by the name of the place where it happened the Maplehurst murder. 
from the website richlandsource.com, a story by Mark Sebastian Jordan, The Maplehurst Murder, Part 1, An Open and Shut Case. I first heard of the case when I worked in town at the Mount Vernon News, though I didn't explore it further at the time. Last year, when I gave a talk about unsolved murders from Ohio history for the Elixir Chautauqua series, audience members asked if I would study the case and do a presentation about it in the future. The two columns to follow this week and next are in essence a dress rehearsal for that talk, which I will do in October 2019. A Quiet Evening According to the coverage in the Mount Vernon Republican News and other regional media on Saturday, April 22, 1905, Miranda Bricker spent the evening visiting with her sister Jane, who lived on Walnut Street, today South Sandusky Street, three blocks west of Main Street in Mount Vernon. The sisters had grown up near Danville and lived there for years. Around 1885, they decided in middle age that they needed a change of pace and moved into Mount Vernon. Jane lived for many years at 107 West Walnut, while Miranda changed residence depending on her jobs, which included a decade working as a cook for the Kenyan Military Academy in Gambier. Since October 1904, Miranda had been working as a maid at the Maplehurst Mansion the grand home on the corner of Division Street and East Gambier Street, owned by Mr. and Mrs. F.L. Fairchild. It was a good job, providing Miranda with a room of her own as part of her employment. But as the next day was Easter Sunday, Miranda made sure to call it a night and head home around 9 p.m. Miranda left her sister's house and headed east, though there remains some uncertainty about her exact path. According to later testimony, the streetcar operator identified in newspaper reports as Motorman Smith picked up a woman matching Bricker's description in the square and proceeded east on High Street. At about 9.12, the streetcar operator said that the woman got off the trolley at Division Street and headed south. The evening was cool and heavy with the dew that had fallen, though skies were mostly clear and the moon wouldn't be rising till 10.30, so outside of streetlights and lights from the windows of houses, the night was pitch black. The Scene of the Crime Maplehurst faced Division Street, right where Gambier Street angles to the south. This meant that the mansion was impressively visible from both roads, the grounds covered with trees and walking paths. Different maps from over the years suggest that those walking paths were reconfigured at times, but in 1905, there was a prominent gravel path at the center of the property leading from Division Street to the front door. Miranda Bricker had just reached the bottom of that path when something happened. Later police theories changed frequently in detail as the authorities tried to unravel events, but all versions agreed that the physical assault on Miranda Bricker began near the bottom of the footpath. An assailant or assailants struck the 55-year-old woman in the face with great force, knocking the false teeth out of her lower jaw, bloodying her nose to the extent that it left a noticeable splash of blood on the grass immediately north of the gravel path, and knocking her hat some 20 feet away. 
Cat a corner to Maplehurst on the other side of Gambier Street, Mrs. Lemuel Swigert was giving her daughter her 9.30 dose of medicine when she heard a female voice cry out. Oh my God! Mrs. Swigert told her son to take a look outside and see what was going on. Moments later, he reported that he thought he saw some people over at Maplehurst, but it was hard to tell because it was so dark and some buggies passing on Gambier Street had obscured his view even further. Mrs. Swigert decided to go take a look herself. She stepped out into the darkness and walked the short distance down to her front gate. Something was wrong over there, but there were no more shouts nor any screams. Mrs. Swigert thought it looked like one of the people had fallen down, and another person got the fallen one back on their feet. The figures were so distant she couldn't make out if they were male or female, nor whether it was two or three people. After seeing the falling, Mrs. Swigert heard a gurgling sound. She began to dismiss the whole affair as a bunch of drunks fumbling around in the darkness. As fancy as Maplehurst was, the town had also been overrun in recent weeks with tramps hitching trains from town to town in the bad economy. If someone had given tramps money, they might very well have gotten drunk with it. Mrs. Swigert went back inside. She found out the following day that she was the only witness to the murder of Miranda Bricker. A Ferocious Battle From the initial point of assault, Bricker and her attacker struggled northeastward, leaving a disturbed path in the dew-laden grass. Bricker must have fallen repeatedly as she fought back, for her clothes were covered in mud and grass stains. About 200 feet northeast of the bottom of the gravel path, the assailant's intentions became clear. He ripped off Bricker's skirt and underwear, throwing them to the ground. The woman fought for her life, lurching further northeast toward the hedge on the northern border of the Maplehurst lawn. Despite the fact that she was a tall, thin woman weighing only 120 pounds, she was able to prolong the fight a further 200 feet before her assailant was able to bring her down and complete his monstrous goal. The coroner was later to say it wasn't clear whether Miranda Bricker died from an arm crushing her trachea or from the extensive bleeding due to violent sexual assault. A little after 10 p.m., another Maplehurst employee, Anna McChrystal, who worked there as a cook, arrived home from downtown. As she walked up the central gravel path toward the front door, she noticed a hat in the grass. She stopped and picked up the hat, but didn't recognize it. She looked around, but could not see anyone in the shadowy expanse of the yard, reasoning that if someone had dropped it, perhaps they'd return and look for it. McChrystal put the hat back down and went on inside Maplehurst. She noticed that Miranda's door was closed and the light was off, so she assumed that her co-worker had already turned in for the evening in anticipation of a busy Easter Sunday in the morning. A Gruesome Discovery Around 9 a.m. Sunday morning, another maid entered the north room of the house, tidying things. Glancing out the window, she froze. What looked like a woman's body was sprawled out on the grass near the hedge at the north edge of the property, a woman naked from the waist down, she alerted her employer, who immediately telephoned the police. Within minutes, Sheriff James Schellenbarger and his deputies were on the scene. The county coroner, W.W. Scarborough, and county prosecutor, Lot Stillwell, weren't far behind. 
co-workers immediately identified the body as Miranda Bricker. Sheriff's deputies discovered the woman's purse some distance down the hedge, closer to the road, with handkerchief nearby. Inspection of the grounds yielded a dozen footprints in the kitchen garden behind the mansion, suggesting that the killer had crossed through the backyard of Maplehurst, but in the darkness had briefly blundered off the gravel path into the freshly plowed garden tract. Regaining the path, he then struck off eastward, cutting across the yard to Gambier Street. By 9.30 a.m., crowds were becoming problematic and guards had to be set up to control the mass of people gathering to gawk. The first person to be questioned was Maplehurst's black stable hand, but witnesses vouched for the fact that he was wearing the same clothes he had been wearing the previous day. The officials reasoned that the killer could not have commissioned the crime without being covered in Bricker's blood. He was dismissed. No reason was given in initial comments as to why the sheriff's department immediately sought to question a black man. Later in the case, one of the officials said to the local press that they had evidence which shows conclusively that the crime was committed by a Negro. That statement was never explained. Lacking strong leads, Sheriff Schellenbarger decided to call for the dogs. Bloodhounds are remarkable animals, able to detect and track the scent of a person with astonishing accuracy. Studies have shown that well-trained veteran bloodhounds can track a scent for over a hundred miles days after the track was laid, even after an intervening rain. But no such dogs were available locally, so Schellenbarger called Detective Woodward, an expert in Dayton, to have him come as soon as possible with his dogs. Evidence Examined Meanwhile, Bricker's purse was examined. It was found to contain a $5 bill. A theory was developed that perhaps Bricker had been walking south on Division Street and found herself being followed. Thinking that perhaps her assailant was aiming to rob her, she may have thrown her purse over the shrubbery on the corner of the property as she ran for the gravel path up to the front door. They surmised that the purse may have been unlatched, allowing the handkerchief to fall out. While inspecting the shrubbery, deputies noticed a blue knit cap on the ground in the street. It was conjectured that the cap may have belonged to the murderer. Prosecutor Stilwell demonstrated that if the murderer had run between the hedge and large shrubbery at the corner of the property, the branches could well have knocked off a person's hat. Indeed, Stilwell was unable to get through the spot without losing his own hat. His theory became that an assailant had begun chasing Bricker south on Division Street, then veered behind the shrubbery to cut her off at the front path where he struck her in the face. This would suggest that the attacker knew the layout of the property and knew where Bricker would be going. Motorman Smith's report of a woman matching Bricker's description leaving the streetcar and heading south on Division Street seemed to support Stillwell's theory, but still no viable suspect had emerged. Some people in the hovering crowd suggested it could be the work of tramps. A transient could easily commit a heinous crime, then hitch a train, and be gone before the crime was even discovered. The officials urged people to wait until they could see if the bloodhounds could track anything. Coroner Scarborough had a local undertaker assist him in removing Bricker's body for post-mortem examination. It was decided that after the autopsy, the victim's body would be released to her sister Jane, 
who arranged for a private funeral to take place Tuesday at the St. Vincent de Paul Church. On the Trail Detective Woodward and his dogs missed the afternoon train that would have brought them into Mount Vernon. The law enforcement officials went into a holding pattern until the bloodhounds finally arrived at midnight. Despite the wait, there was still a small crowd holding out to see what might happen, including a reporter for the Mount Vernon Republican News who noted that the three dogs were named Jesse James, Beneficed III, and Vigilant. Woodward said that one of the dogs had investigated 57 cases. The hounds immediately picked up a scent around the bottom of the front path to Maplehurst and quickly followed it to the spot where Bricker's body had been found. They quickly followed the killer's scent to the kitchen garden and beyond, across the east lawn of Maplehurst and into East Gambier Street. They followed an alley south, down the hill, to the railroad. Many accompanying spectators nodded wisely, noting tramp. But after following the railroad east almost to the quarry, the dogs suddenly veered back up the hill, returning to Gambier Street. Here, the trail cut across lots to Front Street, then went west to MacArthur, north to Chestnut, across a field to Hamtram Street. It turned and headed north on McKenzie Street, proceeding up the hill, past Round Hill, the grand home of Mount Vernon founding father Henry Curtis. At the top of the hill, the dogs turned and went to the back of the house on the corner of McKenzie and Ann Streets. An Arrest Sheriff Schellenbarger went to the front door of the house and pounded. A middle-aged black woman by the name of Elizabeth Copeland opened the door. Schellenbarger asked who all lived there. Mrs. Copeland said that she was widowed and lived there with her son and daughter, and they also had a boarder, Mr. Jerome Newman. Schellenbarger asked to see the boarder. An elderly man entered the room. Schellenbarger took one look at the man and dismissed him as a suspect. And your son, Schellenbarger said, Mrs. Copeland's 18-year-old son, George, stepped into the room. After a few questions, Schellenbarger directed the young man to get dressed and prepare to accompany him downtown, for the sheriff was placing him under arrest for the assault and murder of Miranda Bricker. An automobile was summoned to whisk Copeland away in the night. Now, listeners, that was part one of this story. Part two is not actually out yet. It is supposed to be out by the time next week's episode comes out. So next week's episode of this show should have part two of that story. That concludes this episode of the Cursed Land Podcast. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you all enjoyed. As always, if you've got a story you'd like to hear on the show, you're welcome to send those suggestions to feedback at curse.land. Till next time, I'll talk to you all later.